Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I'm going to read four texts in our hearing. I'm going to do something that I don't, I don't think I've done, uh, and that is uh, bring and tie together a conglomeration of text um, that I have uh, for you this morning, what God has put on my heart. I'm going to read in Mark 6. I'm going to read Psalm 23. I'm going to read Jeremiah 23. And I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 2. We are in week four of a series called God's People, a biblical response to racism. And I have been personally blessed by the ministry of God's Word this month. And I hope you have been as well. You can also take out your phone if you want to follow along in our digital sermon card. You can see that QR code or, of course, that's always available in just such a myriad of places for you to take and to use. Let's begin in Mark chapter 6. I'm going to read five verses. Mark chapter 6, start with me in verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. They had been sit out. And because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Go with me to the shepherd's psalm in Psalm 23, verses 1 through 6. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Jesus, the good shepherd, guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death or the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you, God, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. For surely your goodness and your mercy, your love and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 4. Next passage. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the leaders who shepherd my people, it is you who have scattered my flock and have driven them away. You've not cared for them, so I will attend to you. I will come and be your shepherd. For your evil de- do- doings, says the Lord, then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the lands where I've driven them, and I myself will bring them back to their fold, and they shall, watch this, be fruitful and flourish. For then I will raise up shepherds over them who will shepherd them, and they shall not fear any longer be dismayed, nor shall one be missing. None shall be missing, says the Lord. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14, 15, and 16. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in the flesh the law with its commands and regulations, and his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them, Jew and Gentile, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. I'm preaching to you a message today called 
prophesy life, shepherd his people. What I intend to do for these next few moments is to spend the same amount of time on that first statement as the second statement. I want to blend together four passages that you and I have just read and see what God has to say about us about prophesying life and shepherding God's people. Would you pray with me? God, in these moments we have, I pray you would arrest and seize our attention and apprehend us. Oh God, help us to see Jesus and hear what needs to be heard. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Church, let me remind you. Preaching is not a luxury for the church. Preaching is one of the most essential aspects of our worship. Of the way in which God speaks every week when we gather together in the presence of the Lord, we come to speak and we come to listen. We come to say what we need to say and we come to hear what needs to be heard. As we gather around the table, which we'll do in just a few moments at the end of this gathering, the table of the Lord, the communion, the Eucharist, as we gather around the table to receive the body and blood of the Lord, then we're sent back into the world, church, to be what we've seen, to become what we have eaten, and to live what we have just heard. I do believe, I don't say this lightly, I do believe I have a word for us this morning in this moment. Right in this moment of change and shift for us as a community, shift for us as a church culture, I want to remind you, American culture is changing quicker than it's ever changed. It is shifting so quickly. The C, S-E-A, is changing And as the sea is changing, we as dwelling place people are going to lift ourselves and we're going to let the wind of God carry us somewhere. And what I want to do this morning is I want to speak to what I think that might look like. I want to speak to what I think it might look like to be a faithful witness for Jesus in the midst of our shifting Western culture. Where will God actually take us? But before I do, I want to leave Woodstock first and go to Paris. I'm going to go to Paris 90 years ago. The year is 1937. There's a man by the name of Nicholas Berdive. Nicholas Berdive is a Russian who finds himself in Paris and whose nickname was the Apostle of Freedom. Folks, that is a killer nickname. Probably the best nickname I've come across in my readings. I'm afraid he gave it to himself, but nonetheless... He is the apostle of freedom. He was born in Russia. He lived through the Bolshevik Revolution. He lived through the revolution. Then he lives through World War I in 1913, 14, 15. He's now in Paris where he had seen what taken place. And he's now in 1937 where he's on the cusp of Hitler, Adolf Hitler, and the National Socialist Party is coming to the rise in Europe. And he can see that the world is heading into fanaticism. And in this essay, he writes an essay about fanaticism. Now, when I say fanaticism, I'm talking about fanaticism in the worst sense. People who blindly follow world leaders by the droves. And he's writing about fanaticism, and he identifies what he has learned through his culture in Russia, through Stalin, and through the the Socialist Party, and then also what he's seeing in Paris. And he says in this essay, what makes fanatics fanatic? What drives someone to be a fanatic? And he says, many things seem really obvious. 
He says, fanaticism feeds on fear. He says, the demigods of a national culture, particularly politically, will prey on the nation's fear and they will drive those people to the worst possible behaviors that those people could commit. And in the middle of the essay, right in the middle of the essay, he makes this statement almost offhand. I cannot escape it. I haven't escaped it in weeks. He says these words, the fanatic never sets himself before God but always sets himself instead before other people because the fanatic always needs an enemy and needs to think always only about other people who threaten the way of life that he feels bound to guard. Now, over the last few weeks, I have, I have been brought back to that line. The fanatic cannot set himself before God. Fanaticism, friends, dies in prayer. You cannot truly be fanatic and truly pray. One of those things will end. Either you will be a fanatic and you will only seem to pray like the Pharisees where they seem to pray outwardly but their hearts are not open to God. Or if you pray, it will kill the fanaticism because slowly through prayer, you will begin to take on the humility and the openness and the gentleness of the God you open your heart to. I want to begin there, then I want to go back 750 more years. Can we stay in Paris? We're now going to visit a man by the name of St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas Aquinas is the doctor of the Roman Catholic Church. He also had a name he did not give himself. It wasn't the Apostle of Freedom. He was called the Dumb Ox. The Dumb Ox. I was once given a nickname too that was somewhat like the Dumb Ox, but it was, it was the opposite. It was the Smart and so, so we somewhat have a kindred spirit, okay? It wasn't the dumb ox, it was the, the, the smart, yeah. And, and so the dumb ox is preaching a sermon 750 years before in Paris on Pentecost Sunday. And the dumb ox takes his text, Psalm 104. Psalm 104 was the text on Pentecost Sunday where the psalmist says, you send forth your spirit God and all things are created. You send forth your spirit God and you renew the face of the whole earth. That's his text on Pentecost Sunday. Now you got to understand, St. Thomas Aquinas was a part of the university setting that day and he was in an all-day event. So what he did is he came to the church in the morning, he preached the sermon, part A of Psalm 104. They had a meal together, they hung out in the afternoon, then they came back for Sunday night church. And in Sunday night church, he preached part two of the sermon, Psalm 104. Powerful, powerful message. One of the things that we now know is that when Aquinas was preaching that sermon, he was under enormous political and personal pressure. He was been commanded by the Pope, the Roman Pope, to counteract a certain heresy of his day. And so Thomas Aquinas is very much disliked and hated by the people he's even preaching to. Even his counterparts are, are turning their back on him. And we know that he's very much disliked and hated because in a few months from here, he's actually going to stop writing altogether. And no one has contributed more in the, that, that's, that middle age time of church history than St. Thomas Aquinas. He's going to quit ministry. He's going to quit writing altogether. He's not far from his death. He's condemned by so many that Pentecost morning. In fact, for the next 200 years of church life, his teachings will be considered toxic and nobody wants to be around him. Now, you must understand something. He now is considered the doctor of the Roman Catholic Church, but then he was hated. 
Paris, when he is in that day, is on the cusp of disaster. The year is 1272, and if you study that sermon, I have studied that sermon, what is so striking to me is that you would never know anything was going on in his life. You would never know the turmoil in his city. You would never know the challenges in his life because he simply takes the text about God's spirit on Psalm 104 and he, he and, and God's spirit is sent to renew the whole face of the earth and he gets up that Sunday morning and he preaches about God. Now church, when I study that sermon, I am reminded of what the apostle of freedom, Nicholas Verdive said. He said, the fanatic cannot dwell in the presence of God. And what Thomas Aquinas was modeling for us is a willingness to turn away from all of the trouble in his life, away from all of the turmoil that's going on in his culture, away from all the challenges that are, my God, I'm, I'm, here, I'm here this morning, I promise you I'm here. Uh, all the difficulties and, and challenges that are facing him and the turmoil that's hitting him relationally and, and the challenges he faces in life and, and marriage and, and a culture around him, he turns away from all of that And his heart and mind, listen, when I read the sermon, has to be filled with all the accusations and the pressures and allegations. But that Sunday when he got up and he preached on the Spirit, you would have no sense in listening to his sermon that he was caught up in that turmoil. And I want to tell you today, there is something deeply holy about that. Deeply holy. Hear me clearly. There is a kind of religion a kind of Christianity that is indifferent to your neighbor. There is a kind of way of going into prayer with a lack of care for what's going on in the world. That isn't good. That's not faithful. But there is something so profoundly holy about being aware of all that's going on in your life, aware of all that's going on in the relationships of the people you love, aware of all that's going on in the culture around you. And in spite of that awareness, you bring it into the presence of God and you speak of God and you speak to God and you focus your attention on who God is. Listen to me, we are people as the church of Jesus Christ who should be actively resisting injustice and we should be actively resisting racism. But whatever activism we are involved in, it has to be carried along by the activity of God, folks, or it is just complete vanity. Let me tell you something, whatever we do with racism, whatever we do with activism, whatever we do with social norms, if it is not born out of prayer and intimacy with God, it will not matter in the end. So we need to come back to this wisdom this morning that before we are anything else, we are people of the Spirit. We are people of prayer. We are people who have opened our lives up to God so that God's life can shape us. So I want to go from Paris and let's go even further back to 2,000 years to Jerusalem and the upper room and another man who has a nickname. He's called the Nazarene. He's also called the friend of of sinners. He's saying his last words to 12 handpicked men. He's speaking to them in what John's gospel calls the upper room discourse, the farewell discourse. And this Nazarene is having conversation, telling his disciples that he is about to die. When he's in the upper room, he says to them, watch this, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when I go... I will send the Spirit and the Spirit will lead you into all truth. Watch this. 
The Spirit will not speak of himself. He will speak only what he hears. Listen to what Jesus is saying. I'm about to leave you, and it's good news whether you know it or not. But I will send the Spirit. And what will happen to you is that when you receive a Spirit, you're going to receive a Spirit who is called the Spirit of listening. The Spirit who never speaks except that which He hears. And when the Spirit of listening is in you in 50 days from now, you will be so changed by living with the Spirit of listening that you will gradually be able to be able to hear the things that I'm trying to say to you now, but you can't hear yet. And as the Spirit of listening keeps on transforming you, and right, my God, He keeps on rightly forming you, and the Spirit of listening opens your ears to what you need to hear, then you will increasingly be able to bear the things I want to say to you now, but I can't say to you now. And just before, hours before his death, Jesus is telling them, I have things to say to you, but you can't hear them, disciples, but you will hear them after you've allowed the spirit of listening to form your soul and to form your mind and to form your heart. And then what happens? Suddenly, 50 days later, Acts chapter 2, they're in what? The upper room, 120 disciples are gathered with the mother of Jesus, the physical mother of Jesus, Mary, and many others. And they're there in the upper room. And what does Acts 2 says? The spirit of listening came. Why? What's the very first verse? And suddenly they what? They heard a... They heard a sound. What became literally cloven tongues of fire began to separate on each head. And what was the miracle that day? They began to speak in other tongues, declaring the wonders of God. And the Bible says every nation, every tongue on the planet was heard that day from all God-fearing Jews. And what happens? Peter has now become the kind of person who can speak what he hears. It took him 50 days. It took him two months. It took him about those two months to get formed enough to be able to actually speak what he hears. Let me tell you something, church. That's what happens when you dwell in the presence of the spirit of listening. Now let me take you back to Babylon. 2,500 years ago. Before the upper room, 2,500 years before, we're in Babylon and we're going into the mind of the prophet Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel was weird and as wild as any human being has ever been. If you want to talk about the weirdest parts of the Bible, I'd say 90% of the weirdest parts of the Bible are in Ezekiel. And that's, that's, that's saying a lot because there's a lot of strange parts in the Bible. Ezekiel is weird. He's in also like Paris, a center of culture, and his people are in exile, Babylonian exile, and suddenly he has a vision. A vision. Let's read it. Ezekiel 37, verse 1 and 2. Then he said to me, son of man, uh, go to verse 1 and 2. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord. And he set me in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me back and forth among the valley of bones, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. Let me just say something, folks. We've heard this sermon so many times, especially if you grew up in charismatic Pentecostal churches, that it's taken the edge off of the horror of this moment. Please do not read this like an American and think of Halloween skeletons that have been domesticated. Think of you standing over a million Jews that have been martyred in the Holocaust and the horror 
of bones that are laying before you that have been killed in anti-Jewish violence. And here is Ezekiel standing there. This is not domesticated. Ezekiel stunned. Verse 3. And then God said to me, Son of man, back up. We, we, we we're at verse 2 and then we jump to verse 11. Go to bottom bottom of the text with me, verse 3. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? Now Ezekiel's heard a thing or two. He's learned. He said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Go to the next slide. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Stay right there. So he's given this command in the valley. He's given the command to prophesy to bones. And he prophesies and the bones gather together. Watch this, but they're still lifeless. Verse 9, then he said to me, prophesy, I know they're together. I know the bodies are back together, but I want you to prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breathe from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered these bodies. They came to life and they stood on their feet, a vast army. Go to the previous slide slide to verse 11. Uh, Then he said to, uh, did you have it on the third one? Yeah. Then he said to me, son of of man, watch this. These bones are of the whole house of Israel. This is what's stunning, friends. That means Ezekiel's bones are in this valley. Ezekiel is speaking to his own lifeless body. He's declaring to his own lifeless soul. Speak to them, he says. Declare life into them. Verse 11. They say, what? These people that have breath in them now. This army. Our bones are dried up. Our hope is gone. We are cut off. Now this is what I'd never seen before. Leave that up there just a moment. And I feel like this is the word for dwelling place church. I grew up hearing this text preached. And every time I heard it preached, it was about speaking to dead bones and they live with the breath of God. But if you read the text like I just read with you, even after he has prophesied and even after the bones have gathered together and even after the bones have come together and even after the tendons have come upon the bones and even after they're breathing, they are still speaking death. And what are they saying? We are cut off. Our hope is gone. We are dried up. Why? Because somehow, even after people have been revived, they have the trauma in their hearts of what they've been through. And they have the trauma in their past that they are bound to. And they're unable to get free from. And they're unable to be set free from. And this is exactly what happens to Israel when they come out of Egypt. They go through the wilderness. They get through all of the wilderness. They've been delivered, but Egypt is still in them. And he says, listen to what these people... He said, Ezekiel, close your mouth and now listen to what they're saying. This vast army is saying what? Our bones are dried up. Our hope is perished. We are cut off. Verse 12, therefore prophesy and say to these grumblers, 
This is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open up your graves and I'm going to bring you up from them. I'll bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am Yahweh. When I open up your graves and bring you up for them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. I will settle you in your own land. Then you will, then you will know. Notice this. Then you will know that I have put my spirit in you and you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. So here is the word of the Lord, Dwelling Place Church. When the Spirit of God moves, the Spirit of God moves us out of the upper room and right into the valley of dry bones. The Spirit moves us out of the place from where we've hidden away in our Christian circles right into the place where people feel totally God-forsaken. Let me say it this way. Next slide. When God moves, He moves you towards the God-forsaken. When God moves, He moves you to those who have no hope and are dry and cut off. He moves you to the grumblers. And when we are there, we as the people of God are called to stand in the valley of dry bones called America, knowing that when we prophesy, watch this, people will gather and people will breathe and there's still a part of them that remains traumatized by the death that they lived through through their whole childhood. It's a part of them, though they're still revived, they're still speaking death. And let me tell you something, we can't get frustrated. I'm your pastor, I'm gonna tell you, if anybody's gonna get frustrated, I'm gonna be the first one to get frustrated. People who are revived and still speaking death. People who are awake and still speaking death. People who are awake and still saying, I'm not, I'm cut off. We're, we're dry, we're like a pot surge. Sometimes you speak a word and people breathe and then when they start they start talking, they grumble. And what do they grumble? We're still dead. And what we just keep doing is we must keep hearing the spirit of listening. We must keep hearing what God is saying. Dwelling Place Church, this is the word of the Lord to us. Our time has come, listen, to stand up like Peter who is filled with the spirit of listening on Acts chapter two and to find our own voice, to not find the voice of any other church or any other co company of Christians around here, but to find our own voice by the grace of God and to prophesy life to people knowing that, that the people who we prophesy to will respond but they won't respond fully and we can't get frustrated and we can't we can't resign to our frustrations and back off no we have to realize that we'll speak life to some and bones will come together and the other times we'll speak life and people will actually have breath but they'll continue to speak death but let me tell you something on the other side of every one of those letdowns we must hear God say as this text ends you are my people dwelling place and I put my breath in you and I want you to prophesy life. <laughs> prophesy life. But then we must shepherd his people. Now let me take a thread and weave together all these passages that we've read. We prophesy life, we shepherd his people. In the gospel of Mark that I read earlier, remember in Mark chapter 6, we hear of Jesus as the good shepherd you remember this? God is shepherd. Christ embodied the shepherd heart of God. Christ embodied God's shepherding heart. Now, we are his sheep as well as fellow shepherds with him. You will notice in the text, you'll go back to it, Mark chapter 6, that Jesus first hears from his disciples because they've been set out on a mission. Jesus sent them out to do his work, and they've come back, and they tell him all that they've done and said. And he says, you need to rest. And the Bible says they steal away to a deserted place. But as they're attempting to try to hide from the crowds, the gospel tells us that many saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried to arrive ahead of them. 
So the crowds, what do they do? They recognize Jesus and his disciples, and they see that they're trying to get away, but they press in nonetheless, and they say, you're not getting a break tonight. At least you're not getting a break. We're going to go. We've got some people that are sick, and we need to be healed. But then watch this. In verse 34 of our text, there is a shift from talking about them to talking about him. So verse 33 says this, many saw them going, and then it switches and says, as he went ashore. He, not them, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, for they were like a sheep without a shepherd scattered, and he began to teach them many things. Now, don't let this be lost on us. You're going to say, Craig, that sounds like a subtle point. It's not a subtle point at all. Hear me. The disciples have already begun to be participants with Jesus on his mission. They are not only his sheep, but they are now being called to be under shepherds in his care. And yet there is something they don't have yet that he has. You know what they don't have yet? Even though they're co-participants, they don't have the heart of the shepherd yet. They don't have the heart of Jesus yet. They haven't caught the heart of God for these crowds this is why the crowd, Luke tells, uh, Mark tells us, that the crowd sees them, but Jesus sees the crowd differently than the disciples see the crowd. Jesus sees them as what? Sheep without a shepherd and has compassion on them. Now, do you remember the Old Testament passage I've chosen for today, Jeremiah 23? Remember we read it? This is God's diatribe. Go ahead and go to Jeremiah 23. This is God's diatribe against the shepherds of Israel or the rulers of Israel or the kings of Israel or the priests of Israel or the elders of Israel because they failed to care for God's people. You know what God says? Let's just refresh our minds. God says that he sees what the bad shepherds have done to Israel. They have scattered his people and watch this. They have neglected caring for them. They've neglected to reach to them. And God says, I see what you've done. My judgment is against you. And he says, now because my judgment is against you, shepherds of Israel, I myself will come and I will gather the sheep myself because you have felt at your job. And I will be the shepherd because you have felt at being a shepherd. And then this is the promise. He said, after I start shepherding all of my people, I will then raise up other shepherds alongside of me and they will care for you and you will flourish and multiply. And he says, I will gather them from the ends of the earth. And the last part of our reading of God's diatribe against the leaders of Israel is not one of my sheep will be missing. So what's this? We have a statement from God about bad rulers and about sh- bad shepherds and about bad pastors, because that's what pastors are. The, the word shepherd in the Old Testament, just, just substitute pastor every time. That's what shepherds are. And then we have a promise from God that I myself will come and gather you because my shepherds won't do it. They're scattering you. And then after I gather you, I will raise up other shepherds to care for you. Now watch this. We've looked at the passage in Mark 6, we've looked at Jeremiah 23, now look at the Ephesians 2 passage. Paul describes what Christ has done in reconciling both Jew and Gentile. He broke down the middle wall that kept them apart, and the Bible says he has reconciled, notice this, both of them into one new humanity. We have said that now for four consecutive Sundays. We've looked at this passage for four consecutive Sundays. Both are reconciled in one new humanity. And then this is what Paul says. Christ is the good shepherd 
who dies and does exactly what God promised to do in Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, God promised because your shepherds have failed, I will become your shepherd and I will what? I will gather all people to myself. What does Jesus do? If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself and not one of them is missing. Meaning there is not one person on the planet for whom Christ did not die. Let me just go ahead and say this. There is not one person in your family who is outside the reach of his compassion. There's not one person in your neighborhood that is outside the reach or his intention to save. Now watch this. Who wrote Ephesians 2? Paul. Paul himself was a bad shepherd. He was a militant opposer of Jesus. He literally killed Christians. He was standing over in jurisdiction over the stoning of the first Christian martyr, which was Stephen. And then what does Paul do? In Acts 9, he has his own encounter with Jesus, the good shepherd. And then Paul becomes a what? A good shepherd alongside Jesus, the good shepherd. Now watch this. Psalm 23. Our main text, it's where we'll end today. Follow me. This psalm gives us a pattern of what it means to not only be the sheep of the good shepherd, to be, but also then to become the shepherds alongside the good shepherd. I had some folks at my house this past Tuesday night, and I went into great pastoral unction to communicate to them, this is how God is shaping my heart. The calling of every single one of us in this room is not just to be gathered to the good shepherd, but to become like the good shepherd and that we do for others what he has done for us. Folks, that is the transfiguration this church is waiting on. That's it. That's the transfiguration Jesus by his spirit is leading us to take. The promise in Jeremiah is God will raise up other shepherds and that's exactly what Jesus does. He gathers sheep to himself and then what does he do? He gathers 12 disciples to him and he makes them responsible for his work. But it takes time. Everybody say time. It takes time to become like the good shepherd. Next slide. It takes, watch this, time to come to have the heart of God and the mind of Christ and the mind of the Spirit. And so what do the disciples do in Mark 6? They come back to Jesus after they've been sent out and they want to report to Jesus what they had done and what they had said. What was Jesus noticing? Was he noticing what they had said or what they had done? Was Jesus Jesus noticing his own work? No, he was noticing one thing, the need of the people on the shore. He didn't care about what had already been done. He has empathy and compassion for the people that are yet to be seen. So we see that tension. Watch this. The disciples are already being entrusted with shepherding others, but they don't yet have the heart of Jesus. They don't see what he sees yet. Now, this is what tells the truth about us. Hear me, church. This is what tells us truth about us. At the end of the day, if you want to know what a person looks like, whether they're godlike or not godlike, here's the question. What comes into our heart when we see those without God? So A.W. Tozer, he's a great devotional writer. He's accredited, accredited in his book called Knowing God with this great statement. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Our worship is as high as low as the worshiper entertains thoughts about God. But in this passage, that kind of thought reflects the disciples. The most important thing in our minds is not what comes into our minds when we think about God compared to what comes into my heart when I see someone who is without God. Someone who is cut off from God. Someone who has no hope outside of God. 
Because listen to me, church, I can think glowingly about God. I can think highly about God. I can think rightly about God. But if I don't respond as God responds, then I am, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, I am a sounding gong, folks. I am but a clanging cymbal. Meaning, listen, I have the right idea of God, but I don't have the character of God to respond to my enemies the way he wants me to respond. I have the right thoughts about God. I go to growth phases. I know the truth. I know the elementary teachings. I'm starting to get some idea of righteousness, but I don't have yet the character of God formed in me to respond to people the way Jesus wants me to respond. That is what it means to be a hypocrite. That is to be someone who what? Who lives and has the form of godliness, but denies the power thereof. And so what Psalm 23 does is it narrates the transfiguration of sheep into shepherds. It patterns for us what we call in Christian theology, sanctification. To become holy as he is holy. So let's turn there. If you have a Bible, I want you to see it with me, Psalm 23. Most of you can quote it. I want to show you this progression of transfiguration. This movement from being sheep who are gathered to becoming shepherds alongside the good shepherd. So read with me verse 1 and 2. Psalm 23, the psalmist declares with a statement about God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Watch this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me along the right paths, even for his name's sake. Now notice just for a moment, church, that this is in third person. It's talking about God. And as always with Scripture, there are a lot of ways to hear the resonances. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now that can be beautiful and deeply true, like a confession about your intimacy with God. But did you know verse 1 can also be deeply untrue? That this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, meaning a belief that God is yours and not someone else's. So Abraham Heschel, who was a rabbi who worked with Martin Luther King Jr. in the midst of the civil rights movement. He was a famous author. Heschel has written many books about the prophets. He gave a speech about the evil of racism in the middle of the civil rights movement. And he, he talks in there extensively about how racism is idolatry. Everybody say idolatry. One of the most famous lines in his speech from Heschel is this. What is an idol? An idol is a God who is mine, but not yours. That's my favorite definition up to this point of idols. An idol is a God who is mine, but not yours. He's concerned with me, but he's not concerned with you. So in these opening verses, if you say the Lord is my shepherd, if I mean God is intimate with me, yes, awesome. But if I mean God is my property, God is my possession, God is my God and not your God, that's idolatry. Are you with me? Now, every other verse in this whole Psalm has both resonances. So let's just work through it. If it's the Lord is my shepherd and I'm intimate with him, awesome. If the Lord is my shepherd and he's my God and not your God, idolatry. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Again, it depends on how you hear the resonances. Listen to me, church. There is no good thing God will withhold from you. But there are many things that you think are good that God will withhold from you. And there are many things that are good that aren't going to be yours now, no matter how many times you ask for them. You need to hear me for a minute. If you think God, listen to me, they're coming, but they're not here yet. And we must want what God wants for us. 
There is an old Franciscan prayer that says this, Lord, grant our positions as may be best for us. What do we say when we say, Lord, grant our wishes as may be best for us? God, I want my wants to be, I want your wants to be true for my life. I don't want to want anything that I shouldn't want. And he goes on to say, look, he makes me lie down in green pastures. But that, if that's said in a way that God is useful, it's idolatry again. Not that I worship this God because he always comes through for me. Can I just tell you and remind you the story of scripture over and over and over again is that God is not useful in that way. Idols are useful, yes? You worship idols because why? They come through for you. Why do you worship the idol of war? Because you win your battles. You worship the idol of the harvest. Why? Because there's rain when you need it. But our God is God, whether there's rain or not, whether you win the battle or lose the battle. That's why the three Hebrew boys, we call them in the book of Daniel, they say to the king, throw us into the fire. Watch this. Our God is able to deliver us, but even if he does not, we will not bow. And of course, in Hebrews 11, called the Hall of Faith chapter, we have this long account of men and women, watch this, of great faith, some of whom received their children back to them, some who saw the dead raised, but many who were sawn in half, many who never saw the promise fulfilled, many who never had God come through for them, many who were left for the dead, many who were in, live in hidden caves. And yet what marks all of them is this intimacy with and this confidence in God of, in spite of what happens to them. So that's the resonance you have to hear in verse three. Now, now we get a decisive turn in verse four. What's the decisive turn? Even though I walk through the darkest valley. I will fear no evil for you are with me. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no... Do you, do you, do you, do you see what happens right at that point? Notice the claim in verse 3 is that God leads me. Well, if God is leading you, how do you end up in the valley of the shadow of death? Verse 3 says God leads you and the very next place you find yourself is in the shadow of death. If you read those first three verses childishly, not childlikely, childishly, you will assume that for God to lead you means you will never end up in the valley of the shadow of death. But that's not who our God is. Our God is God in the valley of the shadow of death. So we have this irony. The psalmist said, God is leading me in right paths, and suddenly I find myself in the valley of the shadow of death. And notice what has happened. Keep the text up there. Notice what has happened. We have shifted from third person to the second person. He talked about God in verses one through three, but now in verse four, he has shifted to the second person, but you are with me. This is where the sanctification and the transfiguration starts to happen in our life. You can't just be a converted Christian to Jesus. That's only the first conversion. Now you've got to hit some death. Now you've got to hit some trouble. Now you've got to be led into the valley of the shadow of death where we shift from talking about God in the midst of our trouble to now talking to God directly. And suddenly I'm in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of confusion. And then the psalmist said, I started talking to God. Notice there's a shift from what God's doing for him to now it's just about God's companionship. He says, I'm in the valley, but I don't fear any evil. Why? Because you are with me. Y'all, the book of Job, the book of Job ends, as you know, with God bringing judgment against the friends who speak wrongly to Job about God. And he gives them a judgment and says to the friends, you have not spoken rightly about me. Watch this. 
Job 42. But my servant Job has spoken directly to me. And what's striking about that passage is that God is not so much approving Job's theology as he's approving the fact that Job said it directly to him. It's not that Job's theology is right. It's that Job's heart towards God in the midst of the trouble is to talk directly to him. So watch this. The friends talk about God. Job talks directly to God. If we are going to become the kind of sheep who are also shepherds and have the heart of the good shepherd, there has to be a time in our life where, listen, where we shift out of talking about God and we talk to God in the midst of our trouble. We talk to God honestly in the midst of our trouble and we're really no good use for the good shepherd until we get in the valley of the shadow of death and stop talking about God and start talking to God honestly about the God forsakenness we feel in our soul. Then and only then are we becoming good shepherds. Now we're transfiguring. Now we're being sanctified to understand something that Jesus wants us to understand. And we shift to the second person. And he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Y'all, this is is what's amazing about the good shepherd. He protects us from the lion and the bear, as well as other sheep who act like wolves. It's very important because rod and staffs are symbols of authority. Please hear me. When you see the word uh, shepherd in the ancient world, that meant king. So when when he says, your rod and staff comfort me, this is, you could write in your Bible, your authority comforts me. Now, let me tell you something. I want you to see this. What comforts me about it? The psalmist says, is that I know you're always with me in trouble and your rod and your staff, they're set against everything that would destroy me. Can I tell you something, church? Look at me. If you don't hear anything else I say today, God is never against you. God's compassion is what moves him to care for you. And it's important to realize this. Listen to me. God does discipline us but his discipline is always only for our good. My whole childhood, I heard stories and sermons about the rod and the staff were about disciplining me. That is not what the, what, what the, the Psalter and the Psalmist is saying right here. Listen, God is not interested, y'all, in the way that he looks or comes off. He's not ashamed of us when we misbehave because it reflects poorly on him. No, listen, listen, let me say it this way. He wants us to be afraid of the sin in us, not because he is disgusted by it, but because of what he knows it will do to our humanity. He knows what the sin will do to us as persons. Let me say it this way. Next slide. God is not angry with you because of your sin. God is angry with your sin because he cares for you. He knows what the sin will do to you. He knows what the sin will do to warp you and to warp your understanding and to warp your response to people. So watch this. When you think about the rod and the staff of God, do you imagine God waiting with a stick to strike you in the knuckles if you get it wrong? Then you're wrong. You're not the lion and the bear. He's set against everything that is set against you. And you say, Craig, why is that so important? Look at me. The reason it's so important is to realize that is because if you think God is angry with you, if you imagine a God who is on pins and needles because of your misbehavior, then when you become a shepherd in your local church, you start to relate to sheep the same way. Your rod and staff now are mostly used against the very people you should be protecting. You now use the rod and shepherd against God's people. Listen, if you imagine God is out to try to control your behavior, then when you step into spiritual responsibility, you'll think your job is to control their behavior. 
and you won't make it in ministry. My presence, my words, and my prayers, and my teaching has to be for the healing of those hurting people around me. And my responsibility is not to forcibly bring them in line. God is not forcibly bringing you in line. He's not forcibly bringing me in line. So we have to learn to shepherd the way we have been shepherded. Look at the next part of the psalm. He said, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, this is the way of our God. We will live this in a few moments. We will come to the table in the presence of our enemies. Now, your enemies not might not be in this room, but they'll be in your home when you go back to it in a minute. They'll be in your job when you go back to it tomorrow. They're in the city that you live in. They're in the world that you live in. And our God is a God who cares for us in the presence of our enemies. Now, watch this. You can read this in two resonances. You can read this as a claim of defiance. God sets a table for me in the presence of my enemies to shame my enemies so they can see God cares for me and not them. That's only true if your enemies are sin, death, and injustice. But if you're talking about people being your enemies, no, no, no. The reason God prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies is because he means for your enemies to sit down at the table with you. He's preparing a table in their presence with him. Why? Because he means to reconcile you. That's exactly what he said in Ephesians 2. It's at his body he reconciled them together. At his table he took black and whites together. At his table he took Asians and Hispanics together. It's at his table. What, what does Ephesians 2 say? You sit down with your enemies and in his body he has made the two one. He reconciles us together in his body. He has this imagination when we eat of the body and blood of the Lord. We are all being united one together. And he doesn't just, listen, he doesn't just mean for you to sit at this table with your enemies. He means for you actually to serve your enemies. Because this is the heart of the good shepherd. What does he do for you? Jesus says this. He says, I am one who serves. I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus is not only at the table with us, he's serving us while we are at the table. And we now have to be that for others. We have to be that for our own enemies. Now watch this. We've had a fundamental shift. We started talking about shepherds and sheep. Now we have shifted to host and guest. We started talking about an animal and a person. Now we've talked about two people. Why? Because this is the work God works in us. Human beings are being drawn together regardless of race and color in the same space. Now this is the part that might be strong for you, but just track with me and I'm going to land this plane. What does God do? He draws us into equality with himself. Now that sounds shocking to most of us because most of us have imagined our entire relationship to God based on the fact that he is God and we are not. So we believe that fundamental inequality between me and God is what guarantees the integrity of my relationship. So we say things like this, well, God can do whatever God wants to do with me. He is God and I'm not. But that is a slaveholder's mentality. That is Satan's mentality. God's mentality is that you are heirs and you are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That if in Christ, God, watch this, if in Christ he gives himself up for us, he will in Christ also give us all things. Christ says, I no longer call you servants, I call you 
friends. In Revelation church, we start with an image of God on the throne. In the next chapter, we see an image of the lamb before the throne. Then in the middle of the book, we see the lamb who is with the one who is on the throne. And by the end of the book, you know what's happened? All the saints are gathered together on the throne. And Jesus promises at the end of Revelation 3, to those who overcome, I will grant the right to sit with me. God's relationship to you and me is not grounded in fundamental inequality. It's grounded in the fact that God shares everything he is with us. Everything that he is, is ours. Everything that God intends for the son, he intends for us. It is a father-son relationship, not a fundamental slave-master relationship. And that has to be in us for everyone else too. If I ever treat an unbeliever or a believer who differs with me with any less respect than God has treated me with, then I'm not drawing them closer to Jesus. I'm driving them further away from from Jesus. If I look at anybody in my life and I treat them with any less respect than the respect God gives me, I am effectively siphoning them off from the Jesus I claim to live with. I'm effectively driving people away from the acceptance and the mercy that I have received. Listen, I'm telling you, if my heart is not broken for them, I need to keep my mouth shut about them. If my heart is not broken for the person in sin, if my heart is not broken for the person who constantly destroys their life, then I need to shut up or I need to at least restrict my speech to only talking about God and not anybody else about them because that's gossip and that's slander and that's destruction and that is the exact antithesis of the good shepherd's heart. We are called to compassionate, empathetic intercession. And then he goes and he says, you anoint my head with oil. Y'all, we've gone from eating at a table in the presence of the enemies to literally being the anointed one. What does the Messiah mean? What does Christ mean? It means the anointed one. We've now moved from a daily lunch to a coronation feast in Psalm 23. And we're now being, the anointed one is anointing us. What are we doing? We're being made kings and queens and we're being made princes and princesses. We're being made co-rulers with Jesus. And this is the coronation feast, folks. And this is what Peter couldn't get. And this is what John the Baptist couldn't get. John the Baptist or Peter sitting here, Jesus says, I got to wash your feet. He said, no, 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 no. That's not how my relationship with you works. You're you're supreme. I'm not. We have this inequality. Jesus says, that's not going to happen. You're going to let me wash your feet. John the Baptist couldn't get it. He was in the water. Jesus comes and says, you must be baptized. I must be baptized by you. He said, no, 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 no. You have to baptize me. And Jesus said, that's not how righteousness works. Why? God is jealous for us, but he's not jealous of us. Meaning his authority is not manifested when we are subjugated. God's authority is manifested when we become to be kings and queens and princes and co-rulers with him. When we step into our maturity, God's authority is manifested. Watch this. We started with the third person. We shifted to the second person. Now we end with the first person. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Back to the text, Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What's being said there? Remember Jesus' last words to the disciples in Mark? He said, these signs shall follow them that believe. When something follows you, folks, in Scripture, that's a reference to the effect your life has on the people around you. How many times have you heard this preach like, we're running away from goodness and mercy and it's like chasing us down? That preaches well, but that's not the text. If it's saying it follows you, it means at the end of this psalm, instead of talking about what God can do for me, the psalmist is now talking about what his life will mean for others. This is the conversion Dwelling Place Church must have. 
The first conversion we must experience is conversion to God, where we learn to love God. But that isn't enough. It's possible to love God and hate yourself. It's possible to love God and hate your number, neighbor. But if you keep loving God and you learn to love God as God loves you, your life will begin to overflow with the same goodness and mercy that his life overflows with. And then the hope of Psalm 23 is not just the Lord is your good shepherd, but that you are meant to be a shepherd too. Look at me, church. Look at me. As long as it may take and as painful as it will be, Jesus will keep shepherding you until what's happening in your life is nothing less than what's happening in his life. And wherever you are, goodness and mercy will follow you and you will dwell in the house of the Lord, not as a slave. You would dwell in the house of the Lord, not as a, as a, as a servant. You would dwell in the house of the Lord as a co-regent, as his friend, as his partner. And you will not only be a sheep, but you'll finally become a shepherd. The call of our church is to prophesy life and to shepherd his people. We need people in this community who will prophesy life and refuse to get frustrated even when the revived ones speak death. And keep here in the spirit of listening to have our hearts and minds properly formed that we might what? Speak the way God speaks. And then secondly... We must follow the good shepherd through the transfiguration process from third person to second person to first person so that in the wake of our life, goodness and mercy are found everywhere. I have prayed with my face in the carpet this week that God in this next year would raise up under shepherds. These are not only pastors. Under shepherds in this community who will creatively identify ways to stop thinking about what you feel and about what's dogging your life and what's troubling your life and then be focused on what you think about what you feel and then what you think about what you feel you felt. Because the moment you do that, you effectively cut yourself off from the love of God flowing through you to your neighbor. And you become an under-shepherd in the Good Shepherd service. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.